name is Artemis Potiadou, and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Ima Bongi Moren about race women internationalists, her latest book. In it, she brings together the stories of a group of Caribbean and African-American women who traveled the world to fight colonialism, fascism, sexism, and racism. I start by asking her about the meaning behind the term race women internationalists. So the term race women internationalists derives from the concept of race women. So race women were public women of African ancestry who sought to play a leading role in attempts to solve both the race problem as well as the woman question. And race women internationalism and race women internationalists exhibited these traits of being a race woman, but they identified as also being part of what was called the darker races of the world. And they practiced a range of inter- interconnected internationalisms. So namely black, feminist, Christian, conservative, radical and liberal. Before we talk about the three women in the book, I think they were quite exceptional in that they were world traveled. They formed allegiances with key uh, people and key groups. Can you talk a bit about what the more average experience would have been for the majority of black women in America and the Caribbean at the time? I would say for the majority of, let's say, working class African-American women in the 20th century, um, life was pretty challenging. They were experiencing and lived under Jim Crow segregation, which limited a range of aspects in their lives. Many weren't able to vote. Um, Economically, they were disenfranchised. Um, They ended up going to substandard levels of schools and education. And as a result, uh, had to kind of devise new strategies and ways of belonging and acceptance in order to to thrive and to live. Moving to the Caribbean, the context of early 20th century Jamaica or even the French Caribbean, so the island of Martinique or Guadeloupe or French Guiana, there operated a colour class hierarchy. So at the top of the hierarchy, you have very small numbers of white elites. In the middle, you have a range of mixed race men and women, mixed race usually meaning a combination of African and European ancestry. And at the bottom of that hierarchy, you usually have the working class, and the majority of whom are descendants of the enslaved. And that hierarchy determined a lot about what schools you went to, what kind of jobs you could aspire to. Um, But it was a very rigid hierarchy. Um, Movement between the different um, positions within the hierarchy was quite limited. Um, But the early 20th century sees a rise in the black middle class in particular. So these are predominantly uh, black men and women who end up being able to become teachers or end up having leadership positions within church and religious groups, uh, which expands their ability to have voices and to have perspectives and also to challenge the ingrained hierarchies that exist. So the book revolves around three women, Paulette Nadal, Una Marson, and Islanda Robson. How did you go about choosing them? Well, as I said in my book, there's a range of race women internationalists. Um, It's not just the three women that I talk about. Um, But there were two key factors as to why I chose the three women. So first of all, I wanted to explore women from different parts of the African diaspora. So I wanted to look at the connections between the Caribbean and the U.S., I also wanted to look at women from different political perspectives. So the women that I look at range from radicals to conservatives, and I wanted to explore the connections, the tensions, the similarities and differences between these women. Now, you start the book with Paulette Nadal uh, and her experiences in France. 
What was Nadal's background and how did the move to France influence her? So Paulette Nadal was the oldest of seven sisters, born in Fort de France, which is the capital. Actually, she wasn't born in Fort de France, um, but she was um, raised in Fort de France in Martinique. Um, she came from an elite Catholic family and um, she ended up going to a very prestigious school. It's called the Colonial College for Girls in Fort de France. She also had the opportunity to travel throughout the Caribbean. So in the 1910s, she expands her study of English by going to spend some months in Kingston, in Jamaica. And that kind of not only develops her English language skills, but also inspires her interest in English literature. So when she goes back to Martinique, she ends up applying for a scholarship to study uh, an advanced English literature degree at the Sorbonne in Paris. And her sisters, two of her sisters at the same time, also um, end up getting scholarships to study at the Sorbonne um, as well. So she's very much part of the elite in Martinique and when she goes to France her experiences they don't kind of challenge that elite position that she's in but it expands her understanding and expands her interest in getting to know um, different people of African descent beyond those that are part of the French Empire. How did the French authorities react to a black woman becoming involved in what eventually turned out to be an anti-colonialist movement? Well, initially, um, the newspaper that Nadal founds, La Cavou de Monnoir, slash the Review of the Black World, is a bilingual and black internationalist journal that initially has funding by the colonial government. They see it as a really good way in kind of helping um, Nadal and other writers to spread their ideas, to create connections with other people in the French Empire and beyond. Um, but months later they withdraw their funding because they're fearing in many ways that the kind of growth of black radical organizations are infiltrating some of the more moderate groups that Adal in particular is involved in so there's a way in which they actually become more intimidated that black perspectives on empire that aren't favorable could potentially lead to unrest in the colonies and in France So initially they're very happy, but as they see the kind of growing anti-colonialist movement that's going on in the 1920s and 30s, uh, they become more wary. And then in another colonial metropolis, you have Una Marsden, uh, the first black woman to be employed by the BBC. What prompted her to move to London from Jamaica in the 1930s? She moved to London in order to expand her literary career. So in Jamaica, she had been quite a noted poet and a playwright. She was the island's first woman editor-publisher of a magazine called The Cosmopolitan. And she felt that by going to London, she'd be able to expand her literary networks to gain more exposure to her work. Um, and because she was interested in, in travel in general. And also she felt that she could learn more about her mother country. I found it interesting uh, where you say that Marston was initially quite proud of her British imperial identity. She was proud of the empire and the monarchy. But within a couple of years of moving to London in the mid-1930s, that changes. What triggers that change? Principally, it's racism. So when Marston comes to London, she is part of a very small, small group of black women um, from the Caribbean who are living in London. And she faces intense difficulties in trying to get a job. Um, she can't uh, initially find a place to live and she is quite struck by the general ignorance that many British men and women had about 
Jamaica and the Caribbean, so not knowing about the Caribbean or its significance. And these experiences uh, really shatter her confidence and faith in the kind of notions of, of justice, of fair play, of British imperial brotherhood or sisterhood that she had been taught in school. And it sits alongside her developing friendships with a range of um, other black colonials from the Caribbean and from Africa who are also experiencing these very similar uh, occurrences and as a result are kind of challenging their previous conceptions about what it meant to be a British citizen and as a result articulating a different type of identity, uh, identity that's one that's grounded in a kind of celebration um, of blackness, of African heritage, rather than one uh, that they seem to denigrate or um, overlook it. What was her experience um, working for the BBC? Austin's experiences at the BBC were unique. She was the only black woman on the BBC payroll and she had to encounter racism both with people that she worked with on a day-to-day -day basis and with um, a number of white Caribbean groups who did not like the content of her shows and who felt that she was pandering more to the kind of um, African-dominated aspect of Jamaica's culture rather than stressing the uh, European bonds and, and ties to, to Britain. So she's kind of facing attacks uh, on a, two different fronts in that sense. Um, it's also the height of her career. Um, her position at the BBC gives her a level of exposure that many other Caribbean women just did not have. Um, she's kind of a local celebrity in that sense. Um, but her success also leads to a, a backlash amongst um, people from the colonies. For instance, there are arguments that her radio programs focus too much on Jamaica at the expense of other parts of the Caribbean. Um, and she herself has to continuously try to defend the role that she has and also defend the other producers who she's working with. And she got involved with many organizations, especially in the 30s. I think you mentioned the, the, the League of Colored Peoples, the, uh, and even the League of Nations. Um, which organization would you say had the most impact on her, if there is just one? I don't think there was just one, because she's working with these organizations at the same time in many ways. They're quite overlapping. Um, but in particular, I think for the, the, the development of her black internationalism, it would have to be the League of Colored Peoples. Um, because that organization and her role as editor of its newspaper, which was called The Keys, uh, gave her exposure to a language of um, Pan-Africanism that she didn't have before she came to Britain. And that really exposed her to the multitude of experiences that people of African descent have. Um, and I think gave her far more confidence in being um, more articulate and more persistent with making the case for and arguing about the necessity surrounding notions of racial unity. And then you turn to Aslanda Robson, perhaps the most radical of the three due to her overtly um, left-wing politics and her visits to the Soviet Union. Um, how did her politics affect her interpretation of black internationalism uh, compared to Marson or Nadal? I think her radical politics impacted the anti-colonialism that was more at the heart of her internationalism. So I would say unlike Marson or Nadal, Robeson has a much more stronger critique of British imperialism, of French imperialism, and to a certain extent American imperialism later on in, in the 50s and 1960s. 
Um, so I think that is what distinguishes her internationalism from, from the other two women. I found it very interesting that she travelled to the Soviet Union uh, yes. in, the, in 1934. Yes. Uh, what was the attitude of Stalin, Soviet Union, towards uh, black people? Well, there was an outward uh, expression of solidarity in many ways because the kind of Soviet position was to, in many ways, shame the US for its treatment of its people, of African Americans in particular, of Jim Crow racism, of violence, in particular lynching. And so in the 1920s and 1930s, um, communist groups become very popular amongst African-American left-wing activists. There's a huge number of African-American communists who join the party, who end up traveling to the Soviet Union. And Robeson, both Islander and her husband, Paul Robeson, are kind of tied to these networks while they're in the US, while they're in Harlem in the 1920s, and then they kind of continue this kind of flirtation in the 1930s when they're in London. So when they go, they see the very positive attributes of the Soviet Union and Soviet Union is also at the same time trying to present itself as a very modern, utopian-like society that embraces all of its racial, ethnic and religious minorities. So they see the Soviet Union in many ways as um, the ideal raceless or non-racist country. Um, of course, they're not too uh, knowledgeable about the full extent about what is going on in the Soviet Union at that time. Does she ever change her views towards the Soviet Union later no, on? No, even up until the 1950s, she's very, very pro-Soviet Union um, in her journalism for the New World Review, which is tied to some socialist circles. She writes editorials and articles about the success in many ways of social and political policies there. She... Um, is never a communist member party, uh, but she has uh, very pro-Soviet uh, Union views. And she also got to travel to Africa, which is unlike Nadal and Marcin. How do those travels influence Robson's thinking? Uh, Robson's travels to Africa are seminal in deepening her anti-colonialism. So she first goes to the continent in 1936, uh, while she's a student at LSE, actually. It's her anthropology um, that kind of is the engine for why she wants to go. She wants to learn more and hear more about the African perspective because she feels that her courses that she's taking at the LSE tell her certain, something that she doesn't believe. Um, she doesn't believe in notions of African inferiority, and so she wants to go to the continent and, in her words, see firsthand what it's like to live there, what it's like to, to be from South Africa or from Uganda. And while she's there, she meets a cadre of African activists um, who are trying to challenge colonialism, challenge entrenched hierarchies within certain countries. Um, and these Africans predominantly are middle class. Many of them have traveled to Europe or have studied in the US or studied in Europe. So they're very much part of these kind of um, internationalist networks already. But her experience really does uh, strengthen her aversion to colonialism. It gives her an opportunity to compare racism that exists in Africa with the racism that she experienced in the US and in Europe. Um, and when she comes back to the US um, in the 1940s during World War II, uh, she becomes part of a range of um, African-American organized anti-colonial organizations uh, and many of those people had also traveled to Africa, had networks, were sharing ideas um, and were trying their best to create notions and network solidarity in order to undermine imperialism. 
You just mentioned her time at the LSE. What was that experience like? So she writes a lot about her experience in the LSE in her uh, travel log called African Journey, which was published in 1945, uh, which is part travel log, but also part anthropology. She brings in some aspects of her research that she did in Uganda. But in the opening pages, she talks about how students at LSE were saying, telling her that Africans are primitive and, you know, there's no way um, that she can understand them because she is not primitive and she doesn't buy into this notion. She very much tries to challenge it. Um, and her travels to Africa are a part of that attempt to, to kind of speak back to the students who were uh, saying things that she definitely disagreed with. You read in the book that she was told that she was European and she yes. didn't like that at all. No, yeah, so she was told that because of her education, I mean, she studied at Columbia University, so she has, you know, a very middle-class background, um, went to an Ivy League school, that her education has somehow uh, altered her, her own identity and she doesn't uh, obviously agree with that. And so part of the, the experience at LSE is what triggers her, her travel to, to Africa. You also talk in the book about the double marginalization of black women in historical accounts. Is this starting to change in intellectual history? I would think so. I mean, in the realm of, let's say, intellectual history for many years, there's been a focus on the intellectual as being a certain type of man, right? Um, usually European or American, highly educated, a man of letters in many ways. Um, but in recent years, there's been more attempts to expand definitions of what an intellectual is, to include activists, to include people who didn't just write big texts or big tomes, but to include poets, to include playwrights, to include journalists. Um, and that is kind of a school or a field in which I think my work is is contributing to. Um, there's also been far more attempts to try and kind of carve out uh, what we call a kind of black woman's intellectual history um, to really take into account the ways in which race, gender, class, migration, religion all impact the ideas from black women um, and what those ideas mean both in theory and, and in practice. Through this book you've examined key turning points in 20th century history. Uh, through the eyes of three black women. What did you learn from this and what do you think other scholars could learn uh, by doing similar work? I think what I learned and I think what scholars will continue to learn is how many of the kind of big events of the 20th century did not exist in a kind of silo, right? And how many of the big events were connected to smaller events or some events that are deemed perhaps insignificant. So events that happen in the Caribbean, for instance, that don't get as much scholarly attention as what happens in Africa. So when we think about uh, third world struggles, the focus tends to be on the kind of big, violent incidences that happen. But oftentimes the, the smaller instances that don't generate that much publicity or don't have the kind of light of publicity shine on them are still important. And I think looking at the 20th century through the lens of the three women in my book um, exposed me to the interconnections between big and small events and how travel in particular um, shaped those, those connections. This was LSE's Dr. Imabong Yimoran and this was another episode of Our Histories. Thank you for listening.